0: Welcome to The Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. As we gather in our churches this weekend, it is the 18th Sunday after Pentecost. Our Old Testament text is from Ruth chapter 1, the verses 1 through 19a, and then the epistle reading. We continue in Second Timothy today with chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and the gospel text we follow right along in Luke chapter 17 from last week with verses 11 through 19. So we're going to start with that Ruth reading, Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 19a. This is the only time that Ruth appears in our three-year lectionary. So it's a four-chapter book, but we do not ever see chapters 2, 3, and 4. So to give you an overview of the book of Ruth briefly, Ruth is going to end up being the great grandmother of Israel's greatest king, David. Now, chronologically, uh, where does that put this book? David is born roughly 1039 BC. We know this because he's going to take over as king in 1009, 1009 BC, where he is described as being 30 years old at the time he became king and reigning for 40 years over the land of Israel. So he's born around 1039. This is David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, Ruth. So Boaz and Ruth will become his great-grandparents. Thus they're in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You can see their names in, in Matthew chapter 1. That's significant, as Ruth then is one of only four women to be mentioned in the genealogy, and all of them are outsiders. Well that's not true, Mary's not. But the first three, I mean Tamar is brought in to be the husband of the sons son of Judah, Er, and then she marries Onan and the to hold the whole deceit there, Genesis chapter thirty eight for that. But then you have Rahab, the prostitute from the book of Joshua, chapters two and six, and then Ruth. These are all in the ancestry of David, and thus, by being in the ancestry of David, are also in the ancestry, the lineage of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to see the idea here that the Lord is going to work through the brokenness of his people, the disbelief of his people, even still to continue on the family tree that brings us our Savior. Ruth is the only faithful person that we're going to see in Ruth chapter 1 today. The family that she's joined into, married into, they're not faithful. We see very little of anything faithful from them in this text. All right, so with this being, again, David born around 1039, and this being his great-grandparents, we might place this text around 1100 or so. Uh, in fact, the beginning of it maybe even a little earlier, um, maybe 1120s, something like that, so that by the time you have Ruth and Naomi returning to Bethlehem at the end of this text, that Ruth is of of the age and the generation where she marries Boaz and, you know, skip 20 years a few times to get yourself down to King David. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpa, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Our opening line from the time of the judges is going to bring us from the time where the Israelites, the people of God, enter the Promised Land in 1406 B.C. all the way up until the death of Samson, which is when they anoint Saul king, and that's 1048 B.C., Now, again, we're much closer to Saul than we are to entering the promised land. But that's the rough outline of of our time period here as well. There's a famine in the land of Israel, the promised land, or of Judah. This is something to ponder even from the get-go. The promised land. Promised land. It is a place that the Lord has promised to give to His people. It is a place where He has said it would be flowing with milk and honey. A place that He said that He would provide for them, preserve them, as long as they followed Him. So why is there a famine in the Promised Land? This is happening in one of those seasons, one of those stretches, where they did not follow Yahweh. And this was common throughout the book of Judges. The book of Judges presents a cycle that repeats itself 12 times over, where you've got a judge coming to deliver the people, but the cycle starts with sin. It starts with the people rejecting the Lord, turning against him, rebelling against him, And so the Lord then delivers them over to the hands of their enemies. He allows them, because of their sin, to be oppressed, to be judged. And in time, sometimes it took many years of oppression, they would finally cry out to the Lord. They would repent of their wickedness, seeking his help. And when they did, he would send them a deliverer. Uh, The book, of course, calls them judges. So not like the man who sits with a gavel in his hand on a bench, but a military hero who would deliver, redeem, restore. And then, after they're restored, they'd have a period of peace during which they would once again sin and rebel against the Lord, and that cycle would just repeat itself. This is what the disciples and the crowds in the New Testament were expecting Jesus to do. They were expecting the Savior, the Messiah, to be a judge, a military hero, to rescue them from Rome's oppression and set them up as a kingdom with peace again in this world. And that was not his purpose, but that's the, that's the picture. And so, again, this is in the, one of the midst of those downturns where they, the people have sinned and rebelled against the Lord. And not only the people, but now this family. Let's just think on that for a moment. There's a famine in the promised land. What should the response of the people be? It should be to pray to the Lord, that he rebuke this famine, that he provide for them, that he send rain on the earth if that was the issue, that he caused the crops to grow if they were simply being destroyed or devoured, again, by God's judgment here but that the trust would be put in the Lord and in his promises and in his provision. But they don't. Elimelech and his wife Naomi take their two sons and they leave the promised land, searching provision elsewhere. They're already chasing after an idol. They're already chasing after a false god. And so they sojourn, they leave, going to the country of Moab. They're not the first ones in the Old Testament to do this. Abraham did this back in the book of Genesis, where because of a famine in his territory, things were not going well. He would eventually make his way down to the land of Egypt, which you can find that account in Genesis chapter 12. And there, again, showing that unfaithfulness, Abraham passes off his wife as being his sister so that he won't get killed because of her beauty, not trusting in the promise that the Lord has given that he's still going to have a son. God's promised it. If he's killed, we can't have a son. Anyway, that's Genesis 12. So it is with Elimelech and Naomi here. They take their family. They move to a different place. Now, Moab is from Bethlehem, you would travel east, you would cross the Jordan River, and then you would turn south. Um, It's on the eastern side of the Salt Sea. Probably about a 50-mile journey, it's hard to say precisely because we're not told where in the land of Moab it was that they moved to. So Moab being a country not as big as Israel, not as large as the Promised Land, certainly, but still, there's enough wiggle room in there for for distance calculation. Elimelech's name means, my God is king. His wife, Naomi, her name means pleasant, and you actually see that reversed later in the book, as she will tell people not to call her Naomi, but Mara, which is bitter, because the Lord has judged her, treated her so. She's not seeing anything pleasant about her life with the way these things play out. The son's names, intriguing. Malin means sickly, and Killian means coming to an end. I don't know why they named their children this, but it's not, not names I would probably have chosen for my own kids, when you think about the meaning of the names that you give to them. A lot of people in our culture don't think that way anymore, but the Hebrew people did. Like, in biblical times, the name you gave your child mattered. It was of great importance, and the meaning of it was supposed to be significant. So, did Elimelech and Naomi name their children Malin and Kilian basically by the Lord's direction, whether they realized it or not, Or in gloom, right? So imagine Malin, either because he was a sickly child already or because they were already beginning to see the land become sick and they recognized in advance that famine was coming and then they named Killian coming to an end, right? Look at that again in the context that the land is coming to an end. They think that The promised land is finished. That's the kind of a picture that we're getting from the names that they gave to their sons. But it'll ultimately be these men who come to an end. Now, the naming of them in connection to the famine in the land almost makes me ponder if Malin and Killian are twins. We don't know that, um, but there's enough of a connection there. Either that, or they're still born fairly close together, so that these things were already in view. They're Ephrathites. Ephrathah is Bethlehem, perhaps. It's hard to say for sure. I think this is sort of like what we talk about with Zion and Jerusalem, that Jerusalem is the official name of the city, but you'll see it oftentimes in the Old Testament called Zion. They're used interchangeably much of the time but Zion specifically would refer to a particular mount in the city of Jerusalem. This might be the same with Bethlehem and Ephrathah, that perhaps they're just used interchangeably for one another, or, if not, Ephrathah seems to then be the district of which Bethlehem was a part. We're just, we don't know for certain. Regardless, that's where they're from, and even our children will quickly pick up on hearing the word Bethlehem and they'll recognize that as the place where the Savior, Jesus Christ, is born, where he comes from, and that's going to be the connection to King David and, again, the relevance of this whole account of history that has been included. And, and that's what this is. Ruth is a history book in the Old Testament. It's included, lumped together amongst the history books, because it is. It's not a book of wisdom. It's not a prophet, that sort of thing. Now, as Elimelech dies in the land of Moab, and we're not told how long uh, into that stay, eventually, the two sons have grown up old enough to marry. And they're there for about 10 years, we're told. Now, is that 10 years from when they got married, or 10 years from when the family moved there, period? If it's 10 years from when they moved there, period... Then naming Malan and Killian the way they did in connection to the famine seems odd because the famine would not have lasted for that long. That would mean the boys were already teenagers at least by the time that they moved to Moab. So it could, grammatically, this could go either way. But regardless, the boys got married and then in their time there, they died. And they both died without having sons. So, We're not told in the text who married who here in chapter 1, but we do learn it right at the end in chapter 4 verse 10 that Ruth specifically was the wife to Malin, which means Orpah was wife to Kilian. They don't have sons. Now, the names of Orpah and Ruth, since I'm doing the names of all these people, uh, they're harder to know for sure because they're Moabite women. Orpah is quite debated, in the Christian community on its meaning. Most people, I think, seem to be leaning towards the idea that it comes from the word means neck, so the idea that she might be stiff-necked uh, and thus returned to her, her people rather than doing what Ruth did and, and clinging to Naomi. I, I don't know, again, about that so much, but that's what's out there. And then Ruth, Ruth is connected oftentimes to a Hebrew word that means friend. And she will show herself really truly to be much more than a friend in this text. But and we'll get to that. Now, it's worth stating again as we, I talk about how the family here has not been faithful. Intermarriage is forbidden. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4 to marry someone outside of your nation. For an Israelite, a person of God, to marry someone from another nation was forbidden. And it says it very specifically why in those two verses where the Lord reveals to us that the concern, the reason not to marry from another people group, is that he knows we would be tempted, we would be enticed to end up worshiping their false gods instead of trusting in him, that we would be misled, we would be led astray. And that's a problem that you can easily see happen throughout the Old Testament, including to arguably one of the best kings Israel had, David's son, Solomon. His wives, all 1,000 of them, certainly led him astray, since as he married many foreign women. So Malon, Killian die again, not bearing sons. So all that we have left is Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. Orpah and Ruth. They've lost everything. She can't provide for them, so what are they going to do? Well, that brings us to paragraph number two, starting at verse six. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So we see them beginning to make the 50-ish mile journey from Moab back to Bethlehem because Naomi has heard, somehow, the grapevine, uh, word gets around, right, that Yahweh has brought food to his people. Things have all gone astray for her in Moab. Things have not gone well. There's not much of a reason to want to remain there. She doesn't have prosperity there. She's not cared for there. And she hears that there's an opportunity to eat back in Bethlehem. That's worth it. That's worth the trip. So she's returning for the food, hoping to be provided for. And as she begins this journey, the daughters-in-law travel with her, but she tries to send them away, and that's what most of the paragraph is about. Verse 8, it's interesting that she sends them to their mother's house. I say that in contrast to the father's house. You think, again, the account of Judah with Tamar that I mentioned earlier from Genesis 38, Judah will tell... Tamar as a widow to return to her father's house until the time when his third son is old enough and then she will be given to him in marriage and that's a whole deception thing but the point being that in the ancient world in most cultures it was the father's house the husband the man was the head of the household and if you were a, a widow or divorced, very separate categories, but similar outcomes in regards to what happens next, You, your choices are fairly limited. You didn't have land of which to work for yourself, and so you were either going to return to your father's house, or you would go perhaps to a brother's house. Those are the good options. There are very much so unseemly options of resorting to things like prostitution or homelessness in order to try to, well, just where do you go? And that seems to be the lot that Naomi faced was the idea of, at this point, as she speaks in the paragraph, because of her age and just being a homeless widow. She can't provide for these these two young ladies, um, at least not for the long term she would fall into poverty and despair. So again, it's interesting she says mother's house instead. This could simply be a a note of the relationship she has with these two girls. She may well know their, their fathers have both passed. And so she sends them to mother's home. Otherwise, I don't really know what to make of it, but it's just worth pointing out. Verse 8b is the, well, and and through verse 9, is like the only faithful thing we see from, from this family of Elimelech with Naomi here. She kindly blesses them. She acknowledges what they have done, how they have been kind to her, and she prays, she blesses them, that Yahweh would deal with them kindly in just the same way that they have been dealing with her for however many years it's been, Tenish. She even prays that the Lord Yahweh grant them rest in the house of their husband. She prays that they would find new husbands to marry. So she is being kind to them, generous to them in prayer, and she's using the divine name, she's speaking of Yahweh, asking that Yahweh would care for them. That's good. We can acknowledge that. But again, it's about the only good thing we see in all of this from this Israelite family. The ladies together, they weep, they're saddened, They don't want to go home. They want to go with Naomi. They view her as home. But she insists. She pushes. And her reasoning is simple. It's sound. Uh, She cannot provide for them. And in this case, uh, the best way to provide for them is for them to get married. She can't do that for them. She doesn't have sons for them to marry. And she'll argue, even if she were to find a man, who were willing to take her in, and she were to have a son that very night, right? still take nine months for the son to be born, or sons, you know, God give her twins. Uh, even then, would they wait all the years it would take for those sons to grow up, to then marry the sons? Doesn't make sense. Naomi's using very much a very logical approach here to send them home. Look, go back to Moab, live life, get married, have children. Let's Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply. She then declares in verse 13b, that it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. In my notes here, I just wrote, is she right? We know that all things good come from the Lord. Judgment also comes from the Lord. And as Job famously tells his wife in the opening of his book, in Job chapter 2, verse 10, after his wife has told him, curse God and die, he says, shall we receive good from God? Shall we not receive evil? The Lord brings both blessing and curses. The Lord brings both mercy and judgment. And so it's probably good, actually here, that Naomi is recognizing that this is the hand of Yahweh against her, against her family for their faithlessness. I don't know if I would go as far as to say that this is necessarily repentance on Naomi's part. Now, repentance in its most literal meaning means to turn back. In that sense, yeah, she has repented. She's turned back from Moab and she's heading to Bethlehem again. She's returning to the promised land. But is this a, a repentance as we would describe it, where one confesses our sin, acknowledges our sin before the Lord, seeking his forgiveness? I don't know that we're seeing that as we would describe it from Naomi. Anyway, verse 14, Or leaves. She kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, and she goes home. But Ruth clung to her. That cling word clung there, is the same used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which is sometimes called the marriage verse. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's the way that we're probably most familiar with it these days. That idea of being united. Cling, I think the King James might say cleave to his wife. It's the Hebrew word devak, which means to stick or to cling to. That's the word used here, that Ruth clung to her, Devac, She stuck to her as a husband and wife stick together. Um, she has decided to remain. If we thought Naomi was trending in the right direction, the next paragraph's going to undo that. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. Verse 15 is tragic. I don't know, maybe the most tragic of this whole chapter, of this whole family affair, that she has sent Orpah home, and she acknowledges in the sending that it's not just that Orpah went home. It's not just that she's going to look for a husband. It's not just that she's in Moab. She has returned to her gods. Naomi is acknowledging that she has sent Orpah to hell. She's returned her to paganism. She's returned her to a life that leads only to death. This is, again, tragic and now she says return after your sister-in-law she tells ruth to do the same go back to your gods horrible this is not love this is not caring for another even though that's what naomi thinks she's doing now we see this around us all the time today uh, where people think that they're loving somebody else uh, but it's not really love; it's just allowing someone to be destroyed by their own sinful desires, their own idolatries and that's what she's wishing on her daughters in law this is This is not good now what Ruth responds Ruth asks her to stop basically, do not urge me to leave you. But starting in the middle there, of verse 16, for where you go, strip that out of its context. and I don't mean actually do it, but read it without the context of the book of Ruth around it. And that would seem like actually quite a strong wedding vow. And I think it probably has been used that way before, which is odd, though, when you put it back into its context and recognize that it's a daughter-in-law speaking to her mother-in-law. It's not a husband and wife saying this to each other, but you can see how this would fit a marriage vow so very well. Where you go, I will go. Right, The husband is to lead his family, to be the head of his house. So to have a a wife who submits to that rule and that lead, very fitting. Where you lodge, I will lodge. So the husband's not going to go live in the city and and the wife's going to stay out in the country or vice versa. They're going to live together. Your people, my people, your God, my God. So as the husband leads his family to know Christ and him crucified, the family follow. Just, again, fantastic in that that picture, but within the context, again, Ruth to Naomi. This is yet a great and bold statement that she makes. And the most important part of it is there in the middle, at the end of verse 16, your God, my God. Ruth doesn't want to abandon the faith in Yahweh. So even though this family has been faithless, even though they have rejected the Lord in various ways that we've been able to see in the text, and then probably more so, they've done enough that Ruth knows who Yahweh is. She may not know all that much. We don't know. But she knows enough to know that Naomi's God is different than hers. And she's going to follow this different God. And then she swears by his name. She uses Ruth does, the divine name, Yahweh. May Yahweh do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you, So, Naomi's death or Ruth's death would end this vow, but she's making a vow that they will be family forever. And again, marriage-esque, right? Until death, us do part. It's a tongue twister in the marriage liturgy these days. This is a similar oath as as you read your way through the books of Samuel and Kings, that you'll see it several times, except for usually they say God. May God do so to me, and more also, instead of saying Yahweh. So that's an an interest to me, that the similarity of the vow to the kingly vows that they would often make, but, again, using the divine name where the kings don't. So Naomi gives up on trying to send her away, and the two of them travel off to Bethlehem together, again, roughly a 50-mile journey. At this point, uh, we don't see anything more of the book of Ruth in the lectionary. So just a quick summary for those who aren't familiar with it, though I'd suggest you read it yourself. I mean, it's four chapters. It'll take you, I don't know, 15 minutes at most probably. But Ruth and Naomi go back. Ruth will be sent out into the fields to, to glean the leftovers. It's part of the Old Testament law of God's people that they're to leave the gleanings of the field, not not harvest everything, but leave some for those who are in need and Ruth will gather those things, and eventually Boaz takes notice of her, and Naomi helps her come up with a plan to essentially ask Boaz to redeem her, uh, that is, to be her kinsman redeemer, which is going to connect to Christ as our redeemer, that he would buy her back, and that he would take her to be his bride, and so he's going to essentially acquire all of the things of Elimelech's house. But there was one closer, and so that man had to give up his right of redemption first, and then Boaz was able to do so. And again, Boaz and Ruth will be in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as their son Obed will also then have his own son named Jesse, and Jesse is the father of King David. From whose line the Lord promised in 2 Samuel 7, one of his sons, one of his descendants would forever sit on the throne, and we know that to be Jesus Christ our Lord. Our epistle reading takes us back to Timothy, 2nd Timothy this time, chapter 2 verses 1 through 13. We'll be in this letter four weeks in a row again, as we had chapter 1 last week. We'll see part of chapter 3 and 4 next week, and then more of chapter 4 in the last of these four weeks. So what we have is, as a brief reminder, this is the Apostle Paul writing to a pastor named Timothy, whom he has trained and equipped in the faith. Paul has notably left Timothy in the city of Ephesus to serve as pastor. This particular letter is written near the time of Paul's death. So we're in to place at 67 or 68 AD, Uh, We know him to have been executed by the Roman Emperor Nero by beheading, and he's going to mention, even in our text today, that idea that he is already in chains. So he's already in prison in Rome. It's in chapter 4 that he'll give us the idea again that he has been brought before the Roman Emperor, and he's had to make a defense. Chapter 4 talks about the defense that he had to make just in passing, but it's enough of the details inside the letter then to give us the context to know that this is his, basically his farewell to Timothy. So what we see then, uh, let's dig in with chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also He's able to call him child because it is through his proclamation of the gospel that his family, his household, which is actually of that of his, his, well, not his father, so his father and mother are not of the same faith. Dad's a Greek, carries on that tradition of paganism, whereas mom somehow had come to believe in the Old Testament God, and so had her mom. So maybe that's been passed on, but they share it with Timothy. They're the ones who have Timothy in this Old Testament belief. And then the gospel comes from Paul, showing how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ, and now these ladies believe, and so does Timothy, the grandson, the son. And so Paul is able to call himself basically the spiritual father to Timothy, He encourages him here by by praying, essentially, that Christ Jesus would strengthen Timothy through his grace. Grace, again, means gift, so Jesus' gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation, his gifts of daily bread, that the Lord would provide. But also be strengthened by what you have heard from Paul in the presence of many witnesses, That's the gospel. Witnesses, people who were also there. It's not as though Paul and Timothy had secret sessions. Paul taught in public. Many believed this is a body of Christ, the community of faith in this place. And so Timothy can recall that. This is part of why in the church today, in baptisms, You often have as a part of the liturgy a promise by the congregation to care for that child and to help the parents raise that child in their faith. So Paul now encourages Timothy to take this word, this gospel, and entrust it to faithful men. Part of what we saw in 1 Timothy, that letter was the qualifications to be a pastor, as we would call it, uh, overseer, bishop, deacon's elders, those sorts of words get used in the New Testament. Men who are able to teach others also. I'm not going to say necessarily that Paul just told Timothy to start a seminary. It kind of sounds that way, though. Essentially, he's just told this pastor, Timothy, to train other pastors. Find men who are faithful the Lord, who are filled with trust in Jesus, and who are able to teach, so that they can also find people and do the same. Verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is language the church desperately needs to reclaim today. So much of the church is about success and growth and shows, entertainment. How many would come to church if they knew they were going to suffer? This is a legit question for us to ponder. If Christianity was persecuted in the United States harshly, Uh, We've got minor persecution in ways now, but harsh persecution, like in other nations around the world, where Christians are not allowed legally to gather, and the very act of coming together is a risk to their own life. How many would come? How many of us today are willing to suffer as a good soldier of Christ Jesus? soldiers. We have a master, a commander, and he's given us a command to carry out. That we are to love one another as he first loved us. That we are to take this gospel message and and proclaim it to all people. And yet, do we? Our sinful nature gets so caught up in just trying to please ourselves. We have a different purpose. We have a different call. And this text is a strong reminder of that, even in such a brief and short sentence. We are part of a battle between kingdoms, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the power of the prince of the air, that is, the devil. Our kingdom is not of this world, as Jesus phrases it. And I can say our kingdom because we are co-heirs with Christ. We are helping him, yes, build his kingdom, true, but it's a kingdom he shares with gladly, and willingly with us. Paul then launches into three illustrations, after which he tells Timothy to think over what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So, ponder these things. Learn from them. So, what are the three illustrations? First, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So, an earthly soldier... For example, a Roman soldier, he's not going to get caught up in the squabbles of two people on the, on the street or in the marketplace. He has a task, a mission, that has been given to him from above in his army, his commander, his general, whatever it might be, and he is to follow that. His goal is to please his commander so that he earns his commander's favor, gets promoted, so forth or maybe not demoted, not punished, for getting distracted and allowing something wrong to happen on his watch because he was, again, distracted by what wasn't his to care for. The parallel here for Paul to be teaching to Timothy is, we have a commander, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it is our aim to please him, not to please men. Remember that, O pastor. Be faithful to your call. Teach the people. Share Christ with them. Do not give in to the temptations of this world, to the peer pressure of of just doing whatever people want you to do. He's going to later in this letter warn him about how people will have itching ears to hear only what they want to hear. You're not here in this world to please people. You're here in this world to share Christ with them. So that's the first one. Second, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So you think of the, an athletic competition, and they had the Olympics back then, uh, so the winner would get the crown of laurel, a wreath put upon their head, But that doesn't happen if they cheat. They have to follow the rules. They have to play the game by its rules in order to be victorious. In a sense, this is Paul telling Timothy to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and do what he's given you to do. Don't shy from it. Don't run away from it. Don't hide it. Don't think that you can skip and cheat your way to paradise. Christ has called you, and Christ is victorious. Walk in that. Then verse 6, the hardworking farmer, he's the one who ought to have the first share of the crops. This is not to get into tithing. First share should go to the Lord. That's not the picture here. The picture here is, what happens if the farmer doesn't eat? If the farmer doesn't eat, the farmer gets sick, the farmer gets weak, he's not able to to work the next season as well, and over time, this eventually kills him. So make sure the farmer eats so that his body is strong and he can continue to feed the flock. You saw how I connected there already. Timothy, oh pastor, you need to be fed as well. Do not avoid God's word. Be in God's word constantly. Be fed and nourished. For Christ has said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Be fed. This is important for pastors today. To know that they are to please God and not men. To walk in the ways of Christ, doing what he's given us to do, and to remain and abide in his word, so that we too have the strength of Jesus, right? Right. Verse 1, strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, word and sacrament, forgiveness, life, and salvation are ours, so that we have something to give to someone else. And I'd say that's true for any Christian. Be strengthened by Christ, be filled with Christ, so you have something to give to someone else. If you're weak and sickly in your faith, You have very little hope to pass along. This then brings us to verse 7, that if we're pondering these things, if we're thinking on these things and recognizing what we just went through with this list of illustrations, the Lord will give us understanding in everything. That is, as we live in Christ, as we abide in his word, as we, we receive his grace through his sacraments, We have all the understanding that we need. Yes, we won't know everything in this life. But to want to know everything in this life is prideful anyway. We are but humble servants here to do the Lord's will. Verses 8, well, let's just take the text. Verses 8 through 13. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering. Bound with chains is a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So, Paul, again, encouraging this pastor Timothy to keep his eyes fixed on Christ and to remember that Jesus is risen from the dead. This is what sets our faith apart from all others. Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. Hallelujah. If christ has not been raised we are still in our sins our faith is futile but he has been first corinthians 15 and this jesus is the offspring of david that is the first sorry second samuel chapter 7 promise that the lord made to david that one of his sons would sit on his throne forever jesus does as preached in my gospel and you and i can say the same thing my gospel For it is our gospel, it belongs to Christ, and he has entrusted it to his body, to the church. Now Paul admits then in verse 9 that he is suffering, bound with chains as a criminal on behalf of this gospel. I mean, imagine that. Paul has not gone up to his neighbor, snuck up behind him, and stabbed him in the back to kill him. Paul has not raided his neighbor's home and stolen from them, that he should be bound in prison. He's talked about Jesus. If this were all it was, if it were not a real faith, if it were just some made-up thing by the apostles, which it's not, apologetics is a great study on that one. Uh, If you're interested in knowing some of the reasons why we can so confidently say the the apostles didn't make this up, let me know, contact me, reach out. But you wouldn't put a guy in jail for something like this. You just let, you'd just let him go like he's a kook. No, this is war with the devil. The devil opposes Christ, and the devil poisons the world to continue to oppose Christ and to fight against all that is good. And our own sinful nature doesn't exactly help in the matter, does it? So yeah, the, the world views him as a criminal, and they're persecuting him for preaching Christ, but as Christ himself said, blessed are those who are persecuted on account of his name. Blessed, for they are his. So Paul suffers gladly, willingly on behalf of Christ. But then he says, the word of God is not bound. Yes, they might have chains on Paul's wrists and maybe his feet to lock him in place so he can't leave a room, but you can't bind the gospel. They've bound the apostle, but yet the gospel continues to fly free and is reaching different communities all over the world. And this is true up to this day. You can try and stop the preaching of the church, and in some cases it'll, it'll maybe even look like you succeeded in one place. But the gospel just keeps going. The Holy Spirit doesn't stop working. The gates of hell cannot prevail against Christ's church. So, Paul endures everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation in Christ Jesus. As a servant of the Lord, Paul is willing to endure whatever he has to endure. Whatever the world is wanting to throw at him, he will take it. Okay. On the one hand, A, he knows he's going to be in paradise for the rest of eternity. What's it matter? How bad he suffers here. It really doesn't. There is nothing to fear. The world cannot do anything to him because Christ will just raise him from the dead. On the other hand, he's willing to do it for the rest of us to serve his brothers and sisters in Christ who will also be there in paradise someday. He's willing to hurt. He's willing to be hurt so that we get to hear Jesus. Lord, give us such faith, such confidence, such boldness in our lives. They're exchanging that chains with eternal glory. There's definitely a contrast to that. Instead of being locked away in a prison to rot, being lifted up, exalted on high. The saying is trustworthy. Paul says that five times in the pastoral epistles of 1st, 2nd Timothy and also Titus. This is the only time it comes up in the second letter to Timothy. So trust these words. These words are good, these words are true. And then he quotes something that seems to be, well, it seems to be a quote. It seems to be from a source outside of scripture. We don't know for certain. Uh, Common suggestion is that this is a hymn of their day, so that the people were used to singing this, this is a verse that Paul and Timothy both would have known. That's possible. Uh, Another thing is, I read it, I was just thinking, I mean, what about a slogan of the martyrs? It could be both. There are some fantastic hymn verses that we might have on our lips in the moments where we're persecuted. Or even killed. Four conditional phrases. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. This is a reference to dying with Christ in our baptisms, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6, as we are then given new life through water and the Word. However, you can also make the leap here then to physical death, that as I die, Christ will raise this body, and I'll live with Him forevermore. So there's a maybe a twofold thing at play in this. Verse twelve: If we endure, we will also reign with Him. So as we fight the daily battles, we run the race. As we hang in there, we get to reign with Jesus in paradise, seated together with Him in the heavenly court. In His house. There's something to be said for that. I do like the the wordplay here. I think you can do with the first half of this quote. Death turns into life. Suffering turns into glory. How fantastic is that? It doesn't keep going, though. It actually turns around. Uh, Life turns to death. In the next phrase, if we deny him, he will also deny us. This is Matthew 10, verse 33, what Jesus warns the disciples of, that if we deny him before men, he will also deny us before the Father. So as you stand in the face of persecution, as people mock you for your faith, as they beat you or imprison you, and they tell you you can get out of it if you just reject Jesus, just denounce him. What's the big deal? None of it matters anyway. It matters. A lot. instead of having the opportunity to be a bold witness of what Jesus Christ has done, we become Peter, and we run and we hide. Now, Peter could be forgiven for this, right? Three times before the rooster crows, and yet Christ forgives him, reinstates him, invites him to be a leader in his church, an apostle. So there is forgiveness But the opportunity to preach Christ, the opportunity to share the hope that is in us is lost, and our neighbor is hurt by that. And by our neighbor, I mean, yes, the one persecuting you. The accounts of the martyrs, the moments of their death, I won't say there are always conversions, but there were sometimes. In those moments, to witness the faith of a man being tortured to death, and how he clings to that faith, and how he cries out for Christ, and how he declares his faith, how he even sings. It's hard to imagine being burned alive and yet singing a hymn. There are some who bore witness to these things, and they are in paradise waiting to meet us. Because they saw. And the Lord worked through that proclamation of the gospel, Hope that was in those men and women. Verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. There are times where we are faithless, where we don't cling to the Lord, where we don't do what he has given us to do, where we don't trust in him above all things, and yet even in those moments he is faithful. Why? why is he always faithful he can't deny himself it's who he is it's in his very character and nature to be faithful to honor his word and he's made promises to us that all who believe in Jesus Christ are forgiven that they will be raised from the dead that he has prepared a place for us that we will be with him there even where he is and so Timothy pastor brother my child confidently endure all the trials that you face in this world. And while this may be Paul's farewell letter in this time, he trusts that they will see each other again as they stand before their Savior face to face. Limited time today for the Gospel text, but it is Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. This is actually the familiar text of Thanksgiving Day. If you go to worship on Thanksgiving Day in your church, this will be the gospel reading year A, year B, or year C, because it is an example of a man in Scripture giving thanks. Could have probably found another one too, but this is the appointed gospel for that day, so it's familiar, I think, to most people for that reason. Let's go ahead and read it. It's a short text, just one paragraph. He was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So Jesus continues the journey down to Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem back in chapter 9 verse 53. And as he does, he has to go from Galilee through Samaria. We would expect in English, probably the way we're used to reading, for those two words there to be flip-flopped, doesn't make a difference here. He's moving from, from one region to another, so he has to travel. Starting in the north in Galilee, he has to go south through Samaria, and then he has to go south into Judea, and eventually finally to Jerusalem. And along the way, we're not told what village, but he enters a village, and there are ten lepers. They stand at a distance. And they're not even supposed to be in the village. the The grammar here almost makes it sound as though they are. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're standing outside of it, and he's just inside of it. A leper was somebody who had the skin disease of leprosy. Leprosy is uh, basically a dying, a decaying of the flesh, and so your your skin begins to die. It turns white, uh, begins to fall off. And I'm not just talking about like dandruff or you know dry skin but a serious condition that takes over entire chunks, if not more, of your body. This can be fatal and, again, highly contagious. So leprosy was a specific disease singled out in the Old Testament that if you had it, you were kicked out of the community. You were removed, cut off, and you lived in what they would call leper colonies outside of the the city itself. Now, you can go to Leviticus chapter 14 and read about the process for the cleansing of a leper. I think that's relevant to our context today. Let me just summarize it briefly. When a leper believed himself to be healed, so leprosy's gone, that didn't always happen. Some guys would get better, some would die. When he believed he was healed, he would go towards the priest. He wouldn't actually go to the priest, but he would have the priest invited out to see him outside of the camp because, again, he's still viewed as unclean. He can't come into the camp because he would make other people unclean. It begins with the priest examining him, and if the leprosy remains, he goes right back to the leper colony, but if the leprosy is indeed, looks like it's gone, then there's a sacrifice that is made of two birds. you can read the details of that. There's a scarlet cord and whatnot involved. Then he's to wash himself, then he's to shave himself, and then he's to stay seven days in the camp, but not in his tent. That is not yet returning to his home. On the seventh day, he is to shave again, and then he's to wash. And then on the eighth day, there's another sacrifice, this time of two lambs and finally he is declared clean by the priest so there's a lot to this process truly is these ten men they call out to jesus master have mercy on us what are they looking for healing could be food maybe money supplies it's hard to say for certain. What do they know about Jesus? But look at his response go and show yourselves to the priests. They're not supposed to do that unless they believe themselves to be healed already, unless the leprosy's gone. And it's not, the leprosy's still there. The way the text reads, right, they could look down in that moment and recognize the leprosy is still on them. But Jesus has commanded, and so they go. And then we read, as they went, they were cleansed. Just as Elisha has Naaman go and dip himself in the Jordan River seven times to be healed of his leprosy in the Old Testament, and made no sense to Naaman. This really doesn't need to make sense either. They they don't understand. They just listened to Jesus and they did what he invited them to do. They trusted him. There's something to be said for that. They trusted him. They would have been kicked out, mocked, made fun of, ridiculed, probably rocks thrown at them for going while they still had leprosy. They were unclean. But he sends them and they go and in the going they're healed. The leprosy is gone. Now, what happens? Nine of them don't return to Jesus. Nine of them go to the priests, and then we are left to imagine and assume that they go through the Levitical process, Leviticus 14, of being cleansed and declared clean. And then they get to return to their families. So Jesus has done this miracle for them. He's done this great thing for them. He's rescued and redeemed them from a possibly deadly illness. And now, instead of returning to Jesus, they go back to their old lives. They go back to life as they knew it. They go back to the thing that they longed for. There's a possible connection, certainly for us, in this, that as Christ has rescued us from the deadly illness that is sin, as he has redeemed us, that we are tempted by our old Adam, by that old sinful nature, to just go back to life as we knew it, to just go about living however we want to live. But we're invited in this text to see the other way. One of the 10 men, when he saw he was cleansed, stopped. He didn't keep going. He turned around and he went to Jesus. He praised God for the gift of healing. He knew he wasn't clean. He knew he was still a leper, and yet now it was suddenly gone, just like that. He knew Jesus did that for him. And he rejoiced. And he went to Jesus. He fell on his face, that is, he bowed down and he worshiped. He gave thanks. He returned to his priest. Jesus is the high priest. He is our priest. A priest's job is to intercede between God and men. To handle the sacrifices in the Old Testament, for example. Christ is that sacrifice for us, too. Jesus stands between God and men. He is the one that speaks. He speaks us righteous. Just as he spoke this man clean. And he sees it, he knows it, and he returns to give thanks to his true priest. And he's a Samaritan. That is, he is of the people that rejected God from the land of Israel, the northern kingdom that's destroyed in 722 by the Assyrians and never fully ever returns because the nation never repents even in exile. But some of them do return some of them do still cling to the old testament prophets who prophesied of a messiah who would come this man was one of them and he recognized his messiah right there before his face and he bowed down and he worshiped and jesus responds were not ten cleansed where are the other nine was no one found to return and give praise to god except this foreigner So, Jesus invites the people who've witnessed all of this to recognize it, that even the foreigners, for that's what they are, the Samaritans are no longer what we would call Jews or Jewish, they Judah, Jerusalem, that endured after Assyria destroyed the Northern Kingdom. They were God's only people for that stretch of time. The Jews and Samaritans being the two capital cities. uh, So Jerusalem, capital of Judah, they're known as Jews, and Samaria, capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, they're known as Samaritans. They were at war with each other for centuries. They hated each other, and that hatred spills over and continues, and yet Jesus points it out. Here's a foreigner, and yet he can recognize the things of God. What about the rest of you? What about the Jews, where'd they go? Why did they not return and give thanks for the miracle of God? Rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus has pronounced him clean, and so he's clean indeed. Jesus has pronounced you clean of all your sins, so you are clean indeed. Rise and go. Give thanks to the Lord and serve him with great joy. God. Yes.